This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. There are three letters that I know Eric Balchunas uh, obsesses about ETF. There's three others that have come up on Trillions before that are not your favorite. And those three letters are ESG. Yeah, look, I get tagged with being anti-ESG, but I'm not anti-ESG. I'm anti-nasty surprise. And as analysts, our job is to make sure, you know, investors find the right products. And um, to me, ESG was active management wrapped up in this moralistic face and sold as like, hey, you're going to do good and do well. And it's not clear if you're going to do either. Uh, There's a lot to unpack there. And I think, again, if it was sold as a new way to to be active and pay more, (laughs) I'd be like, all right, well, at least the marketing's honest. So look, ESG, the data, I think it's going to stay. This is data that will help anybody analyzing a stock. What I've been skeptical about, and we're going to debate on this show, is ESG sort of taking over your portfolio in the form of funds or ETFs, and you basically staking your kids' education and your retirement on this sort of ESG vision, which again, is making active bets and can underperform. So this is the thing that I think many people just need to understand before going in. But then there's also multiple layers of inconsistencies and things that sort of offset each other that make it very confusing. And now over the years, ESG's gotten so much baggage. So there's this sort of reputational issue that ESG has. So I think ESG is at a major inflection point right now. Some people have declared it dead. I wouldn't go that far, but I do think it's at a crossroads and it may have to go on without actually using the phrase ESG. Mic oh, drop. Wow. You like that? Okay. Should we just... <laughs> well, let's... Uh, I may have just like uh, stolen my own thunder. Yeah. I think that's... Well, <laughs> now we really get to go there. Okay, so joining us for this episode, two colleagues in Bloomberg Intelligence who are also the co-hosts of a new podcast called ESG Currents. That's Rob Duboff. He's the senior ESG analyst in Bloomberg Intelligence as well as Shaheen Contractor, who's the senior ESG strategist. This time on Trillions, is ESG dead? Rob, Shaheen, welcome to Trillions. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having us. Shaheen, you're, you've been on before. Yes. Well, good to have you back. We love having returning guests. Okay, so Eric's kind of a hater as he's laid out, but we're going to have you uh, do some Mortal Kombat with him, and we'll see who wins. What's happening in ESG now? We've had this moment where there was a ton of buzz. It felt like all of the financial industry went there. And then it was like the culture wars happened and there was a ton of pushback. Where do things stand now? So I can chime into this. I think, you know, as Eric mentioned, ESG uh, is as 
at a bit of an inflection point. We saw a lot of flows in the ESG ETFs maybe till about 2021. And we're seeing that unravel a little bit. So ESG ETF flows, at least in the US, were about a negative $2 billion in the first half of this year. Now, if we get into the why, we can get into it. I think it's concentration and, and all that fun stuff rather than the backlash, but we'll get into it. I know Eric's throwing his hands up in the air. Let me, let me, I get, I got to jump in here. So here's my take on it. Okay. ESG tends to be a little overweight tech and underweight energy. Yeah. Tends to be, right? Because it doesn't want to own the bad, I just put my hands in quotes, the bad companies like Exxon, which we all use every day. Anyway, it doesn't want to own those companies. So when energy had the huge rally in 2022 and value stocks did very well and growth and tech were like bad, then ESG underperformed. And what really happened is BlackRock pulled ESGU, which is the biggest ESG ETF in the world, out of its own model. That's how bad it got. Its clients must have complained. And so really what I think happened was it underperformed, which again was our our whole thing to begin with was, hey, easy. The marketing is so rosy and shiny on this, but this could underperform for long stretches of time because it's making active bets. You don't agree with that? I agree in part. So I would say that R definitely falls with the ESG funds, this overweight tech Underway energy, I completely think is, I wouldn't say not valid, but not necessary. I think the reason why BlackRock pulled out, it could be ESG, it could not be ESG. I don't think we have a definitive answer. At least that's my view. I think if we see the money come back in, we know it was not ESG. If the money stays out, maybe it was ESG. I think we'll just have to wait and watch. Well, if the money comes out, I mean, it's because it was underperforming because it was lagging the S&P. Whether it's overweight tech, I mean, I know that one is sure. a little overweight tech, a little underweight energy, Slightly. and it lagged. And it, so I think BlackRock put, pulled it out and went into the quality ETF, which was quality stocks. And that was the trade BlackRock decided. I'm sure it hurt them because they were the biggest cheerleaders. So to see, And that was $8, 9000000000 billion. I mean, this is not a little bit of money. They knew people would notice. And so it was that correct. bad. But maybe they just wanted to move from sort of things that resemble a core strategy, which ESGU does in a way. It's very sort of light in ESG to a quality fund. I, I don't know. I'm just saying that we don't know if it was allocative or ESG. Rob, what is the conversation around ESG missing? Yes. Well, I was just going to say, you know, Shaheen has talked about the, the greed. I'm going to talk about the fear, the anti-ESG pushback. So we've seen a lot of politicians, you know, it tends to be red state, blue state, but really it's more along the lines of energy producers versus energy consumers, um, you know, really pushing back on this notion about allocating capital away from some of these high emitting sectors or, um, you know, part of it is also feeding into the culture wars to, let's be honest, get themselves elected. Um, you know, we do see a lot of noise being made. Um, now, whether that's impacting ESG, I don't think that's the case. I think the reasons you guys have talked about performance and some of the nuts and bolts of the financials are really what's driving it. But there is definitely a lot of noise out there that maybe hasn't affected how ESG funds are run, but definitely how they market themselves and how they talk about it. So, for example, you know, BlackRock barely uses the phrase ESG anymore in its reports. They'll talk about the actual issues. They'll talk about um, the carbon transition. They'll talk about diversity, but you know, they won't actually use the phrase ESG. Well, what's interesting to me about the BlackRock thing, I guess, is obviously I think it was a huge priority. They got attacked hard. How much of this? 
of them not using the phrase ESG anymore has to do with that versus them just moving on and prioritizing new Yeah, so I think they're connected ideas. but disconnected. I think the returns are why they pulled money out of ESGU in their own portfolio. My guess is they, I think BlackRock put ESGU in the core when tech was doing a little better and it was like, it didn't disturb anything. But when it started underperforming, my guess is their advisor clients were like, hey, wait a second, why is ESGU in here? I didn't ask for it. And it's underperforming, it's dragging. And they thought also this trade isn't working and they went to something that's working. I see this do this with other funds all the time. It's not like anything personal, but that's my whole point. The returns aren't personal. And the case of Larry Fink and ESG, them coming out with ESG, putting it in their portfolio was all part of that big push about four years ago, cheerleading ESG. The political blowback, I think, was more than he thought. I think he was like overwhelmed and probably thought to himself, I thought I was saying good things here. But you have to understand, that's a whole thing about Larry Fink, the leader of BlackRock, who controls $10 trillion. And a lot of that is voting shares of U.S. stocks. Not all of the millions of investors in BlackRock feel exactly the way he does. So as an asset manager, you're almost like a president where you're always going to piss off like half the people. And so I think that's what happened. He didn't realize this was completely political to a lot of people. And he kind of stepped into that political realm, which asset managers are not used to doing. And I think it was a little too much. I think they got some uh, pensions and um, institutional investors down south pulled money out. And I think that's when it started to become like real. And they they took they b- took a few steps back only to get hit harder from the left. And I think they get hit from both sides regularly and you can't win. And so Vanguard is really, I think, probably set the better model of just staying the hell out of that. And they're out in Malvern, so protesters can't go there because the Schuylkill's a pain to get to. But BlackRock gets protesters at their office all the time, although now they move to Chelsea Piers, where it's much harder to get to, so probably less. <laughs> it's not. It's such oh, but Seven yeah. train. Come on. Yeah, but if you're like a, I don't know, 24-year-old protester, you, you probably don't. It's, it's just not some, like 52nd Street's right off the subway. You get out, protest, and you can make like your sushi dinner or whatever. But <laughs> going to Chelsea Piers, that's a pain. That's a whole day activity. Going to Val- Malvern, that's like a... I mean, they might not even make it. You can you can do some bowling afterwards, though. Let's be clear. <laughs> That's true. It's it's a good place to go. I like it out there. I'm just saying, it's it's not easy. It's like five long blocks. Okay, Shane, what's the future of ESG? Having had this thing happen, this culture war, is there an investing thesis there that works and that we're going to hear more of? Because ultimately, this comes down to data, and if people look in the data and find stuff they value. Aren't they going to double down? Yeah, so I think what I'm hearing right now, at least, and I'll speak to the short-term view first, in the U.S. is people are continuing to do what they do, but they're not expressing it as loudly as they were. That's what I'm hearing from asset managers. Europe is a whole different ballgame. People continue to do what they do. They're probably expressing it even more. So that's uh, that's sort of the short-term view. I think the long-term view really depends on this political pushback. I got to jump in. This whole it, oh, Everybody always brings up Europe. Okay, we got to address the Europe issue. Did you know your, Eric had thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> I always hear this. They're like, oh, yeah, it, it's kind of petered out in the U.S., but Europe, they love it. You know, And I agree. Two yeah. things on Europe, though. A, when you invest in a fund in Europe and they carve out a stock or two, it, it's less dangerous because here in the U.S. we have so much innovation and you can't miss out on a Tesla or an Amazon or your returns are going to be a lot lower. There are no companies like that over in Europe pretty much. It's less dangerous to do it. Second, there's a lot of people who have the retirement already covered. So they don't really care that much about like their pension. end results. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's here. We're like, we don't think Social Security is going to be there. So our retirement is major. So at the end of the day, I think returns will trump that whole ESG thing for 95% of people. So I think the the reason why Europe is doubling down is actually because of its pension funds, right? Like you may say, like they don't miss out on things and all that stuff, but their pension funds have been doing it for a long time and they just shove it down people's throats whether they like it or not. And just one point on the return. So, you know, even if BlackRock pulled ESGO out because of performance, even if, right, it's not like an ESG ETF world we're seeing mass outflows from other funds. It's a very concentrated outflow. So it's not like there's a mass uprising. I think that's that's my point. It's, I'll give you it's that. It's one example. Most of the flows are out of ESGO, which is good news for oh, you. The, but yeah. when the media jumped on this train two years ago, sure. most of the inflows were ESGO. Correct. So, so that's, they, a, that's <laughs> a separate Black problem. BlackRock orchestrated all this, to be that's honest. That's a separate problem of concentration <laughs> risk, which I know you've, you, you've mentioned before. So. Yeah. Positive flows have slowed, but it's not like negative flows are increasing at, at a pace that signals some kind of exodus. I'll just say that. But the shoving it down your throat, I agree. That's why I think Europe and U.S. are different. And U.S. is more of a meritocracy, consumer-oriented market. And I think more of a natural place to judge if ESG sentiment is real versus a pension who has to do it because the government. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I feel like I was at a SEC conference in D.C., which I we went over, I don't know, two months ago, and a Virginia professor said something very interesting. She said, the demand for change, especially on climate, is, is so big, but the supply of regulation is so small. And so that demand just is finding, wants to be satisfied somewhere. And so it should be satisfied on the regulatory front. 
but it's not. So it, it goes to the asset management world where you could argue this is not the right place for it, whereas the regulatory front is the way to move forward on many of these issues. So in other words, regulation in the US that tells you how much you can pollute or emissions and a lot of harder standards is the way to solve this problem. Not, oh, I own a little less Exxon than the yeah. S&P, I'm gonna change the world. Yeah, no, that that's an interesting question. I think certainly there's a lot more politics in it in the States, whereas in, in Europe, kind of most of the continent is on board with the fact that climate change is an issue that needs a whole of government approach. Um, and that includes both regulating uh, energy policy as well as regulating the funds industry. But in the States, it's a bit more, there's a lot more of a lively debate on what can be done. Um, now, interestingly enough, plug here, we did have uh, the uh, co-head of the Congressional Sustainable Investing Caucus on our podcast, ESG Currents, who discussed this very issue. And basically it was that there's a lot of, it's a lot more difficult to get, particularly in our divided Congress, to get the sticks in there than it is the carrot. So that's why you saw legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which really incentivize going green and, and carbon reduction policies. But again, I would say part of what's behind ESG investing is to take advantage of that, to find the businesses that will make money in the long term in a IRA world. So I'm not disagreeing with you that you know it really takes government action to do most of the change, but I would say that as an investor, you kind of want to pay attention to these government actions and see, you know, how how can I make money off of this? I think I would agree. So Eric, your point is that this should fall on the regulators to push it through and not asset managers in a way? Generally in, speaking, in way? yes. I feel okay. like your role as a voter and as a consumer are way stronger in this climate issue sure. than whether you sell S&P 500 and buy something that has almost the same stocks, but like 1% Exxon instead of 2%. Right. So, that just seems so pointless to me. So I would say that, you know, there are facets of climate change that don't wait for regulation, right? Like, say you have physical risk of a mine has a risk of flooding. Like, that is not if impacted by regulation. If regulators come in, what, what are they going to ask asset managers to incorporate? So I think that that is where... Like Rob said, people are seeking opportunities or trying to mitigate risk using these things. Like floods don't wait for regulation. So I think also behind your question is really one of the biggest issues getting to the heart of this debate is that ESG is not one single strategy. There's kind of two different faces of it, as I like to call. Three. Three. There actually are three. Yeah. E -S -S so one is exclusion, which is the the church. Joel, not those, Joel, not the, the ESG. Fact checking. I like it. There are, there are three, right? There are e three. ESG, one, two, yes. three. But there's also three types of strategy. There's the exclusionary strategy, which is really where sustainable investing started from. The old church pension funds that said, don't invest in gambling, don't invest in tobacco, et cetera. Um, and then you have what's called ESG impact, which is, you know, let's invest in Tesla. Let's really divest from Exxon to drive capital. And then there's really the heart of what we consider ESG integration, which is not so much how, how am I going to change the world with my investments, but the world's changing. How can I shape my invest, investments to, to benefit off of that? So those are really two different things. One well, is, let me come back to you on that. So this idea of like, oh, I have the S&P 500, but I don't want to miss out on regulation that could hurt some companies or something that could benefit. But that's sort of the point of an index fund, right? Active will sort that out. 
Active managers will, and I always said, ESG data, here to stay. Active management using ESG data, here to stay. Active will be like, well, this company is a massive risk with this new regulation. They'll sell it, the price will go down, and it will fall as a weighting in the S&P. My point is, as an index fund investor, I'm kind of getting that ESG injection if Active deems it you know, the thing to do. And I think that's sort of why it's difficult for ESG ETFs to dislodge the core is A, the core is cheaper. And most passive investors, I think, understand that you're getting actives. Active is driving the car. You're following. And ESG decisions will go into active management's decisions. And so a company that has a huge risk will probably get trickled down and get kicked out of the S&P at some point. I would, I would, I would agree with that in a way. It's, I do think passive the world of passive when it comes to ESG, you know, things like low carbon, where it's like a very index base, you just take out the the highest carbon emitters, that is a little easier. But when it comes to these complicated things, so I agree. You just talked about a company like the Exxon, and I would call those suppliers of things you that are bad or whatever. But what about the user? So I look at a company like Apple. It's in like every ESG ETF, but we all know Apple has the phones made in China, And then all those parts and the phones get shipped all over the world. I mean, they have to be one of the biggest users or consumers of what Exxon makes, yet they're in the fund. In fact, you start looking at the whole S&P, the whole thing runs on fossil fuels. Like, I just feel like the demand, the supply side, these oil companies kind of get a bad rap. It's almost like the movie Traffic, where you're just blaming the people running the drugs in from Mexico, but like... The kid's daughter is using them. She's in the demand side. And it's like, well, hey, why don't we focus on the demand and the supply should take care of itself? Just fact check, Apple, huge commitment to renewables, by the way. So, I'll add that Apple is in many ESG funds, but is on average underweight in all these ESG funds, at least in the ones we've analyzed. <laughs> Sorry, we're not answering your question. Um, I would I would wait in here. You're, you're talking about kind of... Um, to geek out here, something that's called scope one versus scope two versus scope three emission. Oh, scope oh, one is basically, you know, everything you burn from the engine in your car. Scope two is basically what you're outsourcing to the public utility. So the emissions from the power plant. And then scope three is every product I make or every supplier, what's their emission? So up and down the supply chain. So you're really talking about Apple scope three or sorry, Exxon scope three emissions are being Apple. And I don't disagree with you that there is a lot of emphasis on getting Apple to cut, or Exxon, I keep mixing the two up, getting Exxon to cut their scope three emissions when really a lot more of the responsibility should probably fall on the consumers to reduce their emissions by investing, as Joel said, in renewables or maybe reducing the plastic content, um, everyone buying a Tesla, um, things like that. So uh, that said, there are certain things that Exxon can control. They can make you know, the Exxon, I used to cover Exxon as an equity analyst. You know, they do have a very large chemicals business. They can innovate. They can make the same fuel with less emissions. So it's kind of a mix of both that, that Exxon can do. Okay. I want to just bring this back to companies. Um, there are a couple companies that have come up already, and we should just like talk about how they fit into the ESG puzzle, I think. Let's start with Tesla. Is Tesla ESG? Ooh. Uh, if you want to make, I already see the smoke coming out of their ears. I was going to say, if you want to make smoke come out of an ESG analyst's ears, ask them that question. I, uh-huh. And you guys- Well, I just did they're, it. They're like, oh, ah, it's like looking at the uh, the devil so, and the angel. So why is it, right? Well, environmental, it obviously is electric. So it, 
reduce it. Yeah, okay. You don't know. You're no, no, I do know. I have. Attention. I have an opinion. I, I have visceral. an opinion. Okay. Yeah. Roll. But it, on the also like you know, on the S and the G side, let's talk about those things too. So I would say Tesla, because of its governance issues, which Rob can talk to more social. I don't think it fits in an ESG fund. I think it maybe fits more into like an impact or an environmental theme. Um, Eric, you put this really well. A company's products don't make you ESG, right? That way I can say every clean energy stock is an ESG stock, but I would, I'd have to say it has to fit the theme and not ESG. This is ESG. a huge point and we're ESG analysts like you guys. I always tell you guys, you got to get out and educate because most people, you just think of Tesla and they think clean energy, uh, EVs. Uh, or they think Pepsi and they think sugary drinks, bad. But Pepsi's in a lot of ESG funds. What they make has nothing to do with the ESG scores. In other words, a company could cure cancer with a pill, but yet they ha- they could be not in any ESG ETF. Yeah, and I've heard this a lot lately that, you know, with the war in Ukraine, people are saying, oh, well, weapons manufacturers are now all of a sudden ESG, when that's not really true. You can, no one said they weren't ESG. You know, there are certain steps they can take in their process that make them better at ESG or worse than ESG, but you can't just say all weapons manufacturers are not ESG, right? Just like you can't say all EV ma- manufacturers are ESG. It's it's really more about process than it is outcome. So, you know, you're a Philly guy. I trust the process, right? <laughs> nice try. No, uh, that's uh, you're right. I, okay, I, but, I get it. But Tesla on the governance side, let's button that up. Uh-huh. Why, why does it look a little suspect in that? Well, you know, you've seen anytime you have your CEO tweeting on a public platform, thinking of taking the company public or private at 420, funding secured when it is not, in fact, secured, that's really not good governance when you have, you know, your CEO kind of committing what was basically a securities law violation. Um, similarly, you know. He was exonerated. Well, ho- hold on, though. Now, But how does that make it into the data? Like, when you go under that, G, there's That like, was what I was going to yeah. ask, yeah. So it, it looks bad, we, but yeah. like, how do you, as an analyst, classify that? Well, I, th- I think certainly fines data, there was a fine. Um, ironically, one of the things that the SEC made him do was step away from the CEO chair. And so now having a joint CEO or having a separate CEO and chairman is actually positive for ESG. So there's some positive outcomes from that. Um, but there's other things, relations on the board, his brother's on the board. That's usually not common among public companies. Um, you know, basically... The data will show you that Elon Musk, as the CEO and chairman, has uh, a very large amount of power of control of this company. You, as a fundamental analyst, then need to say, all right, what's he doing with this power? Is he a good leader? Is he a bad leader? I mean, he's done a lot of good things to um, you know, improve the value of Tesla over the years, but then he'll also get his foot in his mouth. And you know, maybe being on the board of four other companies or chairman of four other companies, maybe that's pulling his attention away to too many spots. So there's, it, it's a mix of fundamental and quantitative data you can use to determine, you know, hey, their governance is not great. Eric, what's your next favorite company to talk about in the ESG? Easily Berkshire Hathaway, which Mm. is in none. Like ESG hates Warren Buffett. And I think the reason that comes up, and by the way, you guys are sports for dealing with all my stuff here. And I remember when I I wrote a piece about this and Shaheen, I worked with her for so so many years and she just puts up with me. The piece was about (laughs) Berkshire and she was like, yeah, so what? He, he, all these violations, he's not in it. But I'm like, Shaheen, to a normal person, I know you're in the ESG world, but a normal person, this is a shocker. Warren Buffett's going to donate more money than any person probably in the history of the world. And how many people is he going to help? And Berkshire, people don't necessarily think about, they have, I know they have a couple of coal plants, 
But what he gets dinged on is not reporting. And also the board is like not independent. It's mostly Warren Buffett. But most people are like, I'm happy to have Warren Buffett run that company. So this is a shocker. And Warren Buffett, the greatest active manager probably ever to live, according to almost everybody. And you're not getting his active management if you buy an ESG ETF. Again, I think not having Exxon, probably people get. But there's shockers in there. And I think Berkshire is a great example. I mean, going back to the prior example, I mean, bad governance in and of itself shouldn't be a deal breaker. It just should raise more red flags. So you're putting in an inordinate amount of trust in the leader of this company. Now, do you trust uh, Warren Buffett? Most people would say yes. In terms of the disclosure, I think it's definitely, um, you know, you can't. Uh, manage what you can't measure. And I think that's what throws some people off. Now, the excuse Berkshire always gives is that, you know, we own a lot of disparate businesses. um, So, you know, we want to let them do their own thing. We don't want to have to then aggregate this into a company report. But it does cause a lot of issues. So, you know, for example, if I were to ask you, what do most Berkshire, I wouldn't call them employees, most Berkshire workers do? What's the biggest unit in terms of number of workers by far? At Berkshire. Mm. Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen. That's Rob right. Rob stole me this. I was. I would me never too. have guessed that. That's a good question. Yeah. yeah. And and um, you know, if you look at Dairy Queen from an employer, it's. I mean, you think of Berkshire Hathaway has this fancy name, Warren Buffett, big money guy. There's a lot of people working under the Berkshire Hathaway umbrella that are not really making a living wage. So that's mm. definitely something that's worth asking questions about. And you can't really see that without the data. See, I think you guys should go on a um, educational tour or webinars and take one or two companies and just explain why they are or are not ESG. Here's the E, here's the metrics, here's the S and the G. I think it'd be wonderful. Most people don't want any of this. Okay, so I asked about Tesla. Can I add one more thing on Berkshire? Oh, yeah. So, so Eric, your point on Berkshire and philanthropy. So I, I mean, I've told you this, I would separate philanthropy and ESG. So I would ask you the question, does Warren Buffett's philanthropic nature do you think it impacts the risks and opportunities when evaluating Berkshire Hathaway? So this is where ESG is trying to make something subjective, objective. Most people have a subjective feeling about that. Same with Elon Musk. And they would say, if his EVs will actually save the world, I'm willing to overlook everything else because the E should be hyped up big time. But that's in someone's brain. You as an, uh, a, a quantitative ESG analyst, right. of course the answer is no. But it should to, be separated. I'm but, trying to separate the impact on world thing. Like if Berkshire's philanthropy doesn't impact the risks and opportunities of the company, then I would say it shouldn't matter when considering it for ESG. I understand I get your what point. you're saying. I get your point. But this yeah. is where you and I, when we first had that conversation yeah, sure, like five sure, years ago, sure. I'm like, the, the normal people, they sure. just have an image. And what you guys are trying to do is something that most of the times differs from that image. Therefore, sure. there's an educational gap. Yeah. And I mean, Tesla also is very consumer facing. There's a lot of people that have been turned off by Elon Musk's antics that say, I'll never buy a Tesla. I'll wait to see what the other manufacturers have with the EV. Now, maybe they're just kidding themselves and they they don't really want a Tesla to begin with. But you're hearing that more and more, whereas something like Berkshire Hathaway, other than, as I just mentioned, Dairy Queen, I don't think anyone's wa- walking into Dairy Queen thinking, what's Warren Buffett doing? And am I going to buy my Blizzard off of this? But, you know... It can have that feedback loop with the consumer-facing business, where you do have someone who's very big in philanthropy and who's uh, known as either a very good person or a very bad person, you know, and that can impact a consumer's decision, absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. 
Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This brings up another huge problem with ESG funds. Again, not ESG the concept. Well, maybe the concept. There's the baby and there's the bathwater, right? You know that phrase? I do. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yep. A lot of times you, ha you have to throw them both out together or keep them both in ESG. You can't unbundle a stock. You can't keep the E for Tesla and then throw out the S and G. And this is, again, another uh, unfortunate problem. If you could slice up the company, I think ESG would be sharper and better, but you can't. Same with Pepsi. Look what they make. And they're in like the S&P 500 ESG ETF. And, and most people will be is just stunned by that. Okay. Uh, for you two, in the ESG space, blow our minds with an, an ESG insight about a different company that we haven't talked about yet. I can go. So I covered the resource intensive sector, uh, sectors, large resource things, steel, cement, et cetera. And most of these just get excluded from ESG funds just because they're carbon intensive. So I like companies like um, SSAB that is a steel manufacturer based in Europe and they have one of the most ambitious carbon reduction goals and I think the cost angle comes in with the EU emission trading scheme which is the carbon markets which actually puts a cost on a company so I think that dynamic of carbon costs versus how much you mitigate is interesting. Mm. I have one that will kind of blow your mind in that it's considered very it's considered favorably by some ESG raters, but for the wrong reasons, I would say. British American Tobacco is always considered among UK stocks. It's very highly rated among ESG. But part of that is because they're shoehorning it. They're not, as you say, slicing up the E from the S and the G. They're trying to shoehorn it, which in my opinion is ESG not done right. And that trying to look at an environment. I mean, they're an agricultural company, right? They're growing tobacco. They take very good care of the land, but that's not really where the risk comes from. Like no one's going to say, oh no, what is growing tobacco going to do for all this land? They're looking at what are the social risks of British American tobacco. So when it's not done right, 
you'll definitely see some surprises. You really need to focus on kind of what are the most material risks, you know, just like any stock, you know, they they have their pros and their cons, but what's really going to move the needle, needle incrementally. And do you think the acronym ESG should go away and you start to unbundle it slowly over time? Or do you want to dig in and fight for ESG, the acronym? Because obviously, again, Larry Fink hasn't uttered the phrase in like a year. And a lot of the, there was one ETF um, that a pension fund was in where the one that said ESG, they sold and they bought the one called Climate Transition. And again, we haven't seen an ESG in the name ETF filed or launched in a long time. It feels as though the industry is trying to phase out of the phrase, even if they are trying to provide some investment opportunities. Are you guys personally, do you think you should dig in and fight for ESG and defend it or move on and try to think of a new term or just not even a term at all? I I dig in and fight for it because I think it does it does kind of highlight the data. There's environmental, social, and governance data. Whereas I think other names that's gone by over history, socially responsible investing, um, corporate responsibility, you know, nothing gets me more worked up than when I read even Bloomberg stories that that just conflate ESG with do good investing or um, you know philanthropy with ESG. Right? I think it should be data driven. And it needs to be refocused on that. I think the problem is that um, it's very also having the three acronyms in this day and age has been very easy to politicize, right? The three letters, just it's very easy to pick on. And I think we need to move away from that and maybe focus on the data. But I don't think any of the other choices, sustainable investing, are as helpful. I would I would agree. I, I think ESG is sort of the non-financial indicator world of environmental, social, and governance. And I have to say, if you want to unbundle it, unbundle it. Call yourself an E-fund, an S-fund, a G-fund. If you want to focus on all three together, call yourself an ESG-fund. I find all this argument about terminology just a waste of people's time. Okay, looking forward, the inflection point. Here's my theory on what's going to happen. You guys can basically both chime in. ESG, the phrase, will, will slowly get phased out and it won't be uttered as much. And what people are going to do is they're going to keep their S&P 500 ETF in the core. They're not selling it for an exclusionary ESG fund. But what they are going to look to do is pepper on um, something like a clean energy ETF or a solar stock ETF or uranium miners. I call it hot sauce, but it's a thematic play. It's thematic ESG. That way, you're getting a bunch of stocks that aren't connected to your S&P. You don't have to sell your cheap S&P. And you can give money to the stocks that are actually moving forward in this regard, as opposed to penalizing stocks that you probably are a customer of. And there's all kinds of inconsistencies. It feels like we're going to move to that world where ESG is is more part of the hot sauce bucket than of the core. Thoughts? I think people are going to do both. I mean, ESG being part of hot sauce is more the thematics, right? Climate, gender, etc. Uh, I see people doing both. I think they're going to keep doing both. For example, say a foundation has a 100% sustainable investment objective across its portfolio. It really doesn't have a choice to hold core, right? So I think depending on what your investor focuses, it depends. Uh, and I, I would agree. I, I do think that kind of one of the things we need to see is an adjustment for the fee structure, right? You guys talk about the race to the bottom all the time. There's a lot of ESG funds out there that are, let's call them ESG light or kind of just make small tweaks, but charge a much higher management fee. If there's an actual mark to market of that where, you know, it's a small ESG tweak and maybe you know, it'll add one basis point, if that, to that, or it'll just be a standard cost of business. 
you know, that's what how ESG can re-enter the core and that'll be normal. It's just, you know, it, it's not worth it anymore to have a higher fee fund. That's not really doing much for you either performance-wise or ESG-wise. Of course, if you're interested in any of this, please check out ESG Currents. Rob, Shaheen, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.